This is Plucked. Stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll. Bob Dylan's 1964 song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, made a big impression, even though it wasn't a hit. It was too topical to be a single. It told the story of a Baltimore barmaid named Hattie Carroll, a 51-year-old African-American mother and grandmother who died on the job as a result of being beaten with a cane by a rich white tobacco farmer named William Zansinger. But you who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fears Take the rag away from your face now ain't the time for your tears. Dylan released the song shortly after Zanzinger's shockingly lenient sentencing and as a protest to the institutional racism that had created such a miscarriage of justice. Yet despite its tight focus on the news of the day, despite the fact that you couldn't play it on pop radio, let alone dance to it, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll nestled itself pretty deeply in America's collective unconscious and has remained there for over five and a half decades. It's been covered by folk pop diva Judy Collins. William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll. Self-styled all-American Jewish lesbian folk singer Frank. With a cane that he twirled around his diamond ring finger. Reggae legend Michael Rose of Black Uhuru. At the Baltimore Hotel. Irish folk giant Christy Moore. The police were called in and his weapon took from him. Indie wunderkind caged the elephant. They hold him in custody down to the station. And countless self-recorded artists on YouTube. But who was this William Sandsinger, and who was Hattie Carroll? I'm Bobby Waller, and this is the real-life story of the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll. February 8th, 1963, started off like any other Friday for Hattie Carroll. She tried to sleep in, knowing she'd be working late at the Emerson Hotel again tonight, but with all those kids, there wasn't much sleeping in to be done. Between the children and the grandchildren, somebody would inevitably have an injury that could only be soothed by a mother or a grandmother, or there'd be a dispute that called for more authority than a mere sibling possessed. The Carroll family, like many families, needed a matriarch to get things going in the morning. And Hattie had definitely earned her status as a matriarch. She was now 51 years old, and in truth, a little extra shut-eye might have been nice. Years of hard work were starting to wear on her, and she hadn't been feeling too well lately. Still, life goes on, and those bills sure as hell weren't going to pay themselves. Hattie showed up for work on time, as always, but somehow felt like she was already behind. That's just the way things worked at the Emerson. 
The hotel had an illustrious past hosting celebrities like Jimmy Durante, Charles Lindbergh, and Herbert Hoover, and it still marketed itself as a place for Baltimore's go-getters, a place where people who deserve prompt and attentive service can get it. And tonight's crowd promised to be exactly that kind of crowd. The event had been billed as a spinster's ball, a kind of ironic white-tie affair. Though, to be clear, there was nothing ironic about these particular people wearing white ties and expensive gowns. These were exactly the people who could afford such adornments. The irony was in the unrefined way they behaved while wearing such fine attire. Spinster balls had begun as galas where women who had passed the traditional marrying age generally in their mid to late 20s, could rub elbows with potential suitors and get themselves hitched before it was too late. By 1963, they had devolved into excuses for young elite adults, married or unmarried, to dress to the nines, drink in excess, and see what happens. Hattie knew a certain amount of debauchery was to be expected, so she braced herself when the doors opened and the patrons trickled in. Unleashing the demons that lurked inside privileged young white Southerners was never comfortable for a devoutly Christian black matriarch like Hattie, but still, a job is a job. Hattie had lived through many nights like this, and she had every reason to believe she'd survived this one as well. And yet nothing could have prepared her for the level of unbridled racism William Zansinger brought to the party. William, or Billy as folks called him, was a big man, both socially and physically. He ran a 630-acre tobacco farm, which had been placed in his care by his father, a wealthy land developer with ties to officials in the Maryland state government. Billy was broad as an ox and looked to be about as strong as one, too. He stood more than six feet tall and projected a distinctly invasive machismo wherever he went. Billy showed up at the Emerson already stinking drunk, wearing a top hat and brandishing a costume-style cane. He was in an agitated state because the Eager House had refused to serve him any more alcohol. The Eager House was an upscale restaurant where Billy and his wife Jane had stopped for dinner with friends, and after Billy had worn out his welcome, they cut him off. Can you believe that shit? And for what? Some colorful language? If they don't want people using that word around their waitstaff, then maybe they should hire a different colored waitstaff, uptight assholes. And for the record, no one got hurt. The cane is a toy, for Christ's sakes. It's a prop. I'm playing a part here. Lighten up, everybody. It's all for fun. In his depraved state, Billy believed he could shake off the bad juju of the Eager House by doubling down on his commitment to fun. He ordered another drink and launched into an addled Fred Astaire impression, doffing his hat and swinging his cane arrhythmically. I'm putting on my top hat, something my white tie, something, something. He couldn't remember the words. Fuck it, there are other ways to be the life of the party. He pulled Jane onto the dance floor and began dancing with more energy than he could reasonably manage in his current state of mind. In one particularly aggressive move, the lumbering giant tripped and fell over his petite wife, knocking her to the ground. The crowd gasped. Their worried looks cut through Billy's drunken stupor, and for a brief moment of clarity, he could feel their judgment. 
fuck them. She's not hurt. Can't anybody around here relax and have a little bit of fun for once? Uptight assholes. You think you're better than me? Huh? I'll show you who's the boss of this plantation. He bellowed a drink order to the youngest of the barmaids, throwing in a particularly charged racial slur, and then struck her swiftly with his cane. The young woman fled to the kitchen to cry, and a pang of tension ran through Hattie's body. This did not bode well, she thought. The whole setup at the Emerson Hotel was rotten. Black employees serving white southern aristocrats in a stately old world ballroom was bound to conjure fantasies of slavery. And Billy Zansinger was drunk enough to believe those fantasies were his birthright. Hattie tried her best to avoid Billy, but around 1.30 a.m. on February the 9th, he called her out in particular. He demanded a bourbon, calling her a black bitch, and Hattie replied, just a moment. Just a moment? This was not the kind of response Billy was used to. He had required the black workers on his farm to respond with, yes, sir, sorry, sir, and right away, sir. Just a moment wasn't going to cut it. After a period that witnesses described as about a minute, Billy decided he had waited long enough. While Hattie was in a prone position, her hands and attention dedicated to making his drink, the 24-year-old behemoth rushed the 51-year-old matriarch with his cane and brought the full force of his misguided fury down on her shoulder near the base of her neck. A toxic surge instantly overcame Hattie and she felt like she might collapse on the spot, but she was determined not to let this lout steal whatever dignity she had left. Struggling for breath, she remained at her workstation, but within minutes was leaning heavily on the barmaid next to her and commented, I feel deathly ill. That man has upset me so. Zantzinger, apparently oblivious to the damage he had wrought, returned to his table and started beating his diminutive wife, Jane, with his shoe. Hattie's condition worsened rapidly. Her arms went numb and her speech slurred. Co-workers helped her to the kitchen where she collapsed and was taken to nearby Mercy Hospital. Unfortunately, medical staff were unable to effect a turnaround and at 9 a.m. on Saturday, February 9th, 1963, Hattie Carroll died. Felled by a prop whose bearer had purchased it to make himself look comically genteel. For his part, Billy Zantzinger was taken into custody and charged with second-degree murder. His family rushed to his aid, and as up-and-coming songwriter Bob Dylan would later sing, William Zantzinger, in a matter of minutes, on bail, was out walking. But, cautions Dylan, now ain't the time for your tears. Sure, it seems unfair that a white aristocrat could kill an innocent black stranger and instantly walk on bail, but bail isn't the end of the justice process, right? It's just the beginning. So, when should we cry? Flash forward to Wednesday, August 28, 1963. The day of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Something like a quarter million people congregated between the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument to demonstrate the need for racial equality. And if that alone doesn't ring a bell for you, this almost certainly will. I have a dream that one day 
This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The March on Washington was the setting for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech and a harbinger of better things to come, paving the way for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as well as the Voting Rights Act of 1965. All in all, August 28, 1963 was a good day for the civil rights movement. But it wasn't all good. Because on that same day, just 73 miles away, the court that tried Billy Zantzinger for killing Hattie Carroll delivered a sentence that flew boldly and maybe even deliberately in the face of the marcher's call to end white privilege in American public institutions. The Zantzinger family had spared no expense in defending their errant Billy. They had hired five of Maryland's most expensive attorneys, and as a result, Billy had gotten some breaks that aren't available to all defendants. His lawyers finagled a relocation on the grounds that Billy would receive a fairer trial in white Hagerstown than in black Baltimore. For that matter, they argued, no ordinary jury could truly be peers to their well-connected client, so Billy was tried by a panel of three judges. And when Hattie's autopsy revealed that she had died from a stroke rather than from blunt force trauma, and that the stroke may have been precipitated by pre-existing heart conditions, the charge of murder was reduced to manslaughter. Hattie, they reasoned, hadn't died from Zanzinger's assault, but from the stress it caused. Nonetheless, it was undeniable that Billy was the cause or at least that he had flagrantly committed some pretty serious crimes, and in the most crude, privileged, openly racist way possible. The court knew they had to convict. That was never the question. The question was, how lenient could the punishment actually be? How little time could they throw at him and still be able to say they did their jobs? The answer is this. For his various counts of assault, Billy Zanzinger was fined $125. And for killing Hattie Carroll, he paid a meager $500 and served a six-month sentence. On top of that, the court allowed Billy to delay the start of his sentence so he wouldn't have to miss the upcoming tobacco harvest. Sure, some kind of justice would have to be served, but commerce is commerce after all. On the very same day that Dr. King proclaimed his dream of ending institutional racism, the court in Hagerstown, Maryland clearly showed that in some corners of U.S. society, a white man's fortune is still worth more than a struggling black woman's life. And now, according to Dylan, is the time for our tears. Because here is where Hattie Carroll disappears from the story, no longer contributing to this mortal drama. Still loved by those who knew her, children, grandchildren, maybe some of her fellow congregates at the Gillis Memorial Community Christian Church, the ones who are still alive anyway. And I guess you could say she still lives on as a character in a song that Bob Dylan would go on to perform for another half a century. But otherwise, there's not much else to say. The courts had no further comfort to offer the Carroll family. Hattie's case was closed. The system had failed her. 
her country had abandoned her. And in this way, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll was about as lonesome as it gets. On his way to prison, Billy Zanzinger bragged to the press that his sentence would give him a welcome break from farming in the snow for one season. A kind of a vacation, really. When he got out, he became a shantytown slumlord, renting out severely sub-code living units with no sewer, septic, or running water much of the time. Most of his tenants were African Americans, who he claimed to be doing a favor because if it weren't for him, they couldn't afford to live anywhere. Charles County seized Billy's shantytowns when he fell severely behind on taxes, but he secretly kept his tenants in them and continued to charge rent against court orders. He was imprisoned in 1991 for fraudulent business practices and served an 18-month sentence, three times the sentence he served for killing Hattie Carroll. William Devereaux Zanzinger died at the age of 69 in January 2009. Ironically, the same month the United States inaugurated its first African-American president. And I guess that's progress. But what I want to know is, what would Dr. King think about all this? Would he think his dream had come true with another good old boy in the grave and a black man in the Oval Office? What would he think of his birthday becoming a national holiday or of little Bobby Dylan with a Presidential Medal of Freedom around his neck. Would he think his dream had come true? And what about all the hate mail and death threats to legislators who supported an MLK holiday? Or the endless streams of witless political cartoons depicting Obama as a monkey that flowed from the darkest recesses of the alternative press? What would he think about Rush Limbaugh with a Presidential Medal of Freedom around his neck? What would he think about Ferguson? What would he think about Charlottesville or St. Louis or Oakland or New Orleans? And what would he think about the bizarre fact that the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll has been covered more in the first two decades of the 21st century than in all previous decades combined? Why is that song still here? Why does it still resonate? How much longer will we sing it? How many more Trayvon Martins? How many more Michael Browns? How many more Eric Garners? Dr. King, you've been to the mountaintop. Tell us, how much longer will we need your tired dream? Thanks for listening to Plucked. Stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. Most of the music on this show is used by permission of extremely generous friends, including William Mylar of Mylarville.com, Wayne Pearson and Ed Wright, compliments of P.W. Fenton, host of On This Day in Blues History at Bluesland.net, Sinjin Fraser and Tim Curtis Schatz, both of OneEyedRiley.com, Patrick Hennessy of thepikeys.com, and John Emery of johnemerymusic.com. 
if you're a musician and you're willing to let us play your acoustic instrumentals on the show, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for originals or tunes from the public domain that we can legally use as background music with no budget, unfortunately. Drop us a line at pluckedpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be happy to hear from you. Our theme music is She's Easy to Dream About by John Emery. That's capital J-O-N, capital E-M-E-R-Y, all one word, at johnemerymusic.com. Copyright-free tunes from freepod.com include Compi Jazz by Kevin McLeod and Ambient Bongos by Alexander Nakarada. The feature song for this episode was The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll by Bob Dylan, released in 1964 by Columbia Records. For more information on all these artists, please see the show notes for this episode at plucked.com. And for goodness sake, visit these artists' websites, go to their shows, give them your money. They deserve it. Plucked is now available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or just about anywhere else fine podcasts are played. Special thanks to our webmaster, Linda Easton. I'm Bobby Waller. Thanks for listening to Plucked. Thank you.